You're listening to Chad's National Resource Center on ADHD, Ask the Expert. Welcome everyone and thank you for joining us. My name is Robin Maggio and we're pleased to have Stephanie Sarkis and Ari Tuckman helping your young adult become independent. Ari and Stephanie, if you guys would like to begin. Thank you. Today we're going to be talking more about getting your young adult into independence. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, transitioning and some options for transitioning from high school into uh, adult life. And we're also going to give you some options like money management uh, when your child gets older. So let's get started. Living towards independent living is fun. So it's supposed to be scary too because you have, uh, it's very scary for both of you, you and your kid, uh, because you're going on a new adventure uh, that it can be tough when you've been watching your kid like a hawk for so many years to you know let your kid do independent living. So it's very normal for you to feel kind of stressed about it and maybe sometimes not even looking forward to it. Uh, your kid may be all excited about it and you're like, oh no, you know, is this okay? And is he going to be okay? And is life going to be the same? And again, all those feelings are normal. So again, you've been watching your kid like a hawk and you are going to feel a little bit like you're maybe feeling a little bit out of the loop uh, when your kid leaves, uh, whether they're moving out of the house or they're starting a job or they're going to college. Uh, so just remember that everything's going to be okay. And this is a period of transition for everyone. And the consistent thing about ADHD is inconsistency to keep that in mind. So you may be thinking, this is a great day. My kids you know, got everything together. And from now on, they're going to be doing fine. And the next week, you know, they forget to do their laundry. So uh, again, that's very normal for kids with ADHD. So when we talk about transitioning independent living, this can be kind of a tricky question. As sometimes kids with ADHD did not want to go to 12 years of school. They sure don't want to go another four. And there is kind of a push now towards having kids go directly to college. Uh, but there are some other options. So one option you can do is have your student attend a local college. Uh, these used to be called community colleges. Now, usually they're, they have some type of four-year four degree, so they're no longer called community colleges. But it's a college that you can commute from your house. And you might want to consider having a student do that for a couple of years, uh, especially if you're not sure about whether they're going to be able to transition well into independent living. So uh, what you can do is, is have your students still live at home, and you can get after two years an AA or AS degree. That's an Associate of Arts or Associate of Science degree. Now, some of the benefits of going to one of those smaller local colleges is that it's a smaller class size. The ideal class size is 16 students to one teacher or less. And also, sometimes the local colleges have a more uh, personalized Office for Student Disability Services. And this is where your student would get uh, services like extended time on tests, testing a separate location, getting a note taker in class. And again, sometimes because this is a smaller campus, you get more one-on-one -on -one attention. Uh, and also, again, it may be less trauma for you, too, uh, with your kids staying at home. So, And some of the schools, you know, four-year schools, it can be really difficult to get into. But if you've gone to a smaller school for two years and get your AARAS degree, you can transfer in. So that's another option, too, is that you know, if, you want, if your student wants to go to get to a bigger school a for a four-year degree, again, they can go to a local college for two years and then transfer as an upperclassman into a larger school. And also with uh, transitioning into uh, adulthood, too, you know, we have issues with sometimes uh, students, you know, again, maybe college isn't their thing and they want to go out and work. 
Um, vocational training programs are very helpful in the high school areas. I know in the U.S. we've cut a lot of those out, but anytime you can get any kind of on-job training uh, while you're in high school, that really benefits people that otherwise you know, don't want to go to college. And it's okay if your student prefers not to go to college and wants to go out and work. Uh, in fact, they may be making more money than college students in the long run. So, uh, again, a lot of options available. Some uh, parents are also having their kids do a gap year where they do a year where they're traveling or they're working, uh, just to, again, maybe ease that transition in the future. When you do have a student going off on their own and they're individuating, or what that means is that they're growing kind of apart, they're doing their, their independent living stuff, uh, really important that we talk to students about what their priorities are. First is health. That's number one, and that should be for anyone. That means that you are uh, not feeling sick, you're getting enough sleep, you are eating healthy, that you are practicing uh, as good of wellness as you can. Uh, next is family. So family is you know, maintaining good relationships with the people that you live with. So friendships and relationships. Uh, this can be a tricky one, especially when students have a boyfriend or girlfriend that's back home uh, when they're away at school. That can get really tricky. And one of the recommendations I have is that they aren't going home every weekend to see their boyfriend or girlfriend. That can make it much more difficult to adapt to college. Uh, also, you're learning about friendships that you know you had best friends in school, and now you're all over the country going to different schools, and that can be really tough uh, for kids with ADHD. Any kid, but especially when you have ADHD, transition times can be pretty tough. Uh, also, then last comes academics. You may be wondering why is academics last? Well, that's because when these other things aren't working, like you're not in good health, or you have issues with family relationships, you're having issues with friends, academics really kind of falls to the wayside. Again, you know, health is first, then your family relationships, then your friendships or relationship, and then academics. And again, we talked about how essential sleep is. There's a, a sleep app called Sleep Cycle that you can put on your bed, and it will measure uh, how well you're sleeping. It'll tell you when you went to bed, if you're moving around during the night, if you're getting that deep, rapid eye movement sleep, uh, and that app is free. Uh, there are some other ones similar to that, that Sleep Cycle. Also, uh, we say we talk about limited substance abuse instead of no substance abuse because you know, it's pretty normal for college students to start experimenting and maybe do some drinking. Uh, so we talk about limited substance use. Uh, uh, keep in mind that people with ADHD do have a six times higher rate of substance abuse than other people if they're not medicated with stimulant medication. If you're missing a brain chemical, you're going to find a way to replace it. So just keep that in mind. Uh, and you know, it's up to you, but sometimes a lot of parents will tell kids, you know, you are predisposed for having substance abuse issues. You, know, you do have a greater chance of having that. But again, being on stimulant medication, if you take stimulant medication, your risk rate for substance abuse drops down to that of a control group, which means you're getting the brain chemicals that you need, so you're less likely to seek it other places. Also, safe sex. So again, we like to think that our students are going off to college and they're not doing anything naughty, but... So uh, we need to talk about also with our students, you know, using condoms, using birth control, if they're not on birth control already, uh, because, you know, that stuff happens in college. And again, that's a normal part of development, getting older. Uh, but also people with ADHD, according to a study by Barkley, have a 10 times higher teenage pregnancy rate. Uh, and also we're more likely to engage in risky sexual behavior because it boosts, you know, your low brain chemicals like dopamine. So again, you know, but just accept that sometimes your kids are going to drink and they're going to have sex and... They need to get enough sleep. So, again, self-care is essential in that we have an open dialogue with students. And sometimes it's helpful just to state the obvious. Hey, I, I know you're probably going to be drinking and you know, having sex in college, so let's talk about some ways that you can do that in a healthy way and a responsible way.
Now, also, when people have ADHD, they can get not only have a lack of focus, but they can get hyper-focused. And they can have difficulty checking in with themselves, see if they're hungry, thirsty, tired, or if they need to have some movement. So I have worked with people with ADHD that they've passed out because they forgot to eat and their blood sugar got really low. So I have students always carry a protein snack with them uh, in their backpack or they put it in their car. Uh, anywhere they can just grab a quick bite uh, so their blood sugar isn't getting too low. Because when your blood sugar gets low, you also get really tired and have mood swings as well. Uh, so also I have students sometimes set a timer on their, their phone where they can check in with themselves to see if they need anything. Uh, also, uh, when you practice mindfulness, which is a form of meditation where you're doing things, mindfulness meditation, you I'll teach this acronym STOP. So mindfulness meditation, S means stop what you're doing. D is take a deep breath. So you do a diaphragmatic breath where you're breathing with your stomach. So your stomach's actually puffing out when you're breathing. O is observe. And P is proceed with relaxation and awareness. So stop what you're doing. Take a deep breath. Observe. Proceed with relaxation and awareness. And Lydia Zylowska is a psychiatrist that specializes in mindfulness. Has said that if you do that just three times a week, you tend to have lasting effects for uh, decreasing ADHD symptoms. However, you do have to continue doing it. It's not do it a couple times and finish. It's a continued process. And what you're trying to work towards is having your brain automatically do those check-ins without you having to, to focus on it. And also we'll talk about too, the exercise is one of the most effective non-medication forms of treatment for ADHD. And the exercising for even 30 minutes helps improve your executive function performance. And executive functions are in your frontal lobe of your brain. And they do things like organize, filter out information, filter in information, uh, manage your emotions, and those are impaired in ADHD. So again, just exercising for 30 minutes makes a difference in those uh, in those different areas of, of brain function. And it doesn't matter what type of exercise it is, it's just having people get out and move. And again, six times higher rate of substance abuse when someone has ADHD. And this is why a stimulant medication, one of the reasons why it's the uh, number one treatment for ADHD uh, is because it is effective at decreasing substance abuse. There have been several studies showing that. Uh, several studies that were well run with really good researchers looking at the risk for that. And again, keep in mind too that when you have ADHD, sometimes it's hard to make friends and keep friends. So if your kid is with some people that say, hey, why don't you try this? You know, if you try it, you're going to have a group of friends that you can hang out with. You're more likely to do it. So again, this is something you can talk to your student about and say, you know, hey, again, state the obvious that, you know, you're going off to college. And, you know, there's going to be people that may ask you to try stuff and, you know, really think about whether that's a good idea or not. And this is how you know if you have a kid with substance issues. They come home for the holidays from college and you notice they're not sleeping at all. They're staying up a lot. They're not looking the same. They're maybe dressing differently. They're not taking care of themselves as well. Their grades have dropped. Now, keep in mind, though, that with ADHD, sometimes what happens is you get all excited the first part of the semester and your grades are really good. And then when the information starts building up and you start not doing well in your tests, your grades start dropping. So that could also just be a sign of ADHD. But look at the entire group of symptoms you're seeing. Uh, getting into legal trouble. You get busted for drinking on campus. Uh, missing classes. Now, part of that is that when you have ADHD, you have issues with what's called delayed sleep onset or initial insomnia. So it's really hard sometimes for people to wake up in the morning. Keep in mind, again, that could just be ADHD issues. Uh, also, family history of substance abuse. And this is something, again, that you might want to talk to your student about. Uh, just, again, you know, state the obvious. Hey, uh, we got some, some family members that have alcoholism 
or drug abuse issues. And we just want you to know that you have some genetics that make you maybe more common to get this. So also missing medication. You got a student that, you know, it's normal to lose your prescription sometimes, but all of a sudden they're inexplicably having missing pills. They need their prescriptions more often. And this is becoming a habitual thing. And again, asking for money more than usual. So pretty normal that your student contacts you and says, Hey, can you refill my account? But this is where it's really increasing. And if you have a, a, an inkling that your student's having substance abuse issues and use your parent intuition. Um, there are treatment programs available for your student. Uh, and again, you know, this is something that probably needs to be uh, you know, evaluated by a professional and treated by a professional. So now we'll talk about how to be successful in college. So the biggest thing in life is just showing up and getting to class and showing up and being awake is, can be really tough for people with ADHD. One of the things you have to do is, again, get enough sleep. Now, this can be tricky when you got students staying up till 3 a.m. eating pizza. But, again, apps like Sleep Cycle and uh, I know my watch and also Fitbit. Uh, I have an Apple watch that will keep track of your sleep and will let you know when it's time to go to sleep. So I have people take advantage of that. Uh, it may be an issue of, you know, there's a roommate in the room that has difficulties with getting to sleep and they're up all night, um, all hours of the night. And then what you can do too is if your student's having issues with a roommate, you can talk over and do role plays about what to talk about, you know, how to address an issue like, hey, I need to be a little quieter at night. I need the lights to be dimmed a little bit. Uh, get uh, the curtains that block sunlight, the, the ones that they use in hotels with the facing on them. Uh, you can use an uh, eye mask to block out light. You can use earplugs. Uh, there are also apps that will shake you awake um, with your phone instead of you know, having to hear it to wake up because sometimes that doesn't work for people. Also, uh, show up for every class. Even if students you know, don't think they're getting anything out of that class, show up. Uh, get an accommodation where you can take afternoon classes because if you have difficulties waking up in the morning, if you get up to an 8 a.m. class, you may not be fully awake. I've had students wake up in the middle of class and they have no idea how they got there. So work on getting uh, priority registration, your accommodations, so you can get those afternoon classes. And also study in groups, but limit the groups to about two or three people. And always review your notes after you've taken the class. So right after you take the class, sit down, review your notes. Uh, you may need to recopy some. Uh, now there are iPads that you can take notes right on your screen, so just review those. And again, this is uh, something that's gradual. You, if you notice that your kid's doing great and all of a sudden they have a few steps back, that's okay because, you know, progress is progress. I mentioned that uh, last webinar. Uh, but the goal is to have more good days and fewer bad days. And also, if your student's feeling like, uh, you know, I'm always going to have bad days, you know, bring up what their successes have been. Hey, you know, you did really great on this test, or I'm really proud of you that you studied. Because the pressures of college can help people kind of forget the good stuff that's happened to them. So always mention, you know, and use that positive reinforcement with them. Also, accommodations. Accommodations, uh, public schools, universities need to follow federal accommodations, and any private school that receives uh Federal funding needs to follow accommodations as well. And at this point, every private school uh, does receive some type of federal funding. So you go to the Office of Student Disability Services. Now, if your student is in college, so as soon as they turn 18 or if they're 17 and going to college, their educational rights go to them. So for you to be able to talk to the OSDS about your student, your student needs to sign a release for you to talk with them. 
or it's against federal law for them to do that otherwise. So I always recommend that students do let their parents talk to OSDS because parents have usually got all the information that OSDS needs. Uh, you can apply online. I recommend as soon as your student's accepted to school, you apply. And what you need is a letter from your clinician stating your diagnosis. Now, it used to be they used to tell you, well, we need a full evaluation done in the last five years. And that was found to be a violation of the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act. And that five-year rule was found to be largely arbitrary. So again, you apply for accommodations online, get a letter from your clinician stating the diagnosis. I know when I write letters for students, I also make a list of accommodations I recommend for ADHD because the OSDS will have a list usually for ADHD accommodations, but you want to make sure that you get all of them that you need. Uh, one of them is the you know, ability to record lectures, uh, the ability to do priority registration, like I mentioned, uh, the ability to have a note taker in class, and that's done completely anonymously. Also, testing a separate and quiet location. If you're on a big campus, this may be an actual testing center on a smaller campus. It may be a room with a proctor in it. Both meet what's called the spirit of the law. Uh, also, uh, part-time course will count as full-time. That means that you may be in over your head with some classes, and you can drop those classes and still get the benefits of being a full-time student, such as staying in campus housing. Uh, the tricky part of that is financial aid. It's harder and harder to, to stick with your financial aid or receive it when you're a part-time student. But talk to financial aid officers. They do have some leeway in that. Uh, you can also recommend or get a uh, combination that all instructions have to be in writing. Very important if your student's a visual learner rather than auditory. Also, when you get priority registration, you get the in-person class rather than the online class. I always tell students, go to the in-person class and use the online class for review. Because there's this thing called uh, social contagion, which is when you are with other people that are taking notes and asking questions of the teacher, you're more likely to do that too. So if for some reason you're not able to get accommodations, you do have the right to appeal under federal law. And also, I recommend that students get accommodations, even if they don't think they're going to use it every time. I also sometimes have students tell me they don't think it's fair that they get accommodations, other people don't. And what I liken it to is I tell them it's kind of like you're a horse at the gate, and you're about to run around the racetrack, and all the other horses' gates open, and yours stays shut. So all the little horses are running around, and you're stuck. So what accommodations do is they make your gate open at the same time. They are not special um, you know, gifts, they are uh, equalizers. It, it levels the playing field. So again, uh, if students even don't think they don't need extended time, you, know, you may find out in the beginning of the semester they don't need it, but then when the test scores start coming in, they may need that time. But So get those accommodations up front because it's much harder to you know, get them in time to uh, meet your needs later on. Now, if you are taking graduate school exams, so that's G. MAT, MCAT, LSAT, GRE, they are requiring an evaluation done in the past five years. And the reason they can do that is that they're privately owned companies. So uh, you may have to pay for testing. Uh, sometimes your insurance covers it. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, if your insurance does, if you call them and get uh, word from them that it is covered, make sure you get that in writing. They don't have to honor uh, oral statements. So get that information in email, a fax, snail mail, anything that you can get from the insurance company staying that they'll pay for that. So again, those tests can require an evaluation done the last five years. Well, and Steph, let me jump in on that. So when it comes to getting these, this type of testing done, figure at least three months lead time, preferably six months mm -hmm. in order to get onto a psychologist schedule, do all the testing, get the report, not to mention how much farther ahead of the testing date of the GRE testing, let's say, 
you need to submit the paperwork in order to get it approved. So this is not a place to procrastinate in any kind of way. And it does take some time for the testing company to approve everything. Yep, absolutely. Thank you. So also uh, setting up a structured schedule with your student. I use a Gmail calendar when I'm working with students and we create a calendar sharing feature. So that means that they can't see my calendars, I can't see theirs, but we can see the one we share. And I color code events. Classes are all yellow, study times are all blue, household chores are all purple, and so on. Um, I schedule in free time for people. Uh, when you have ADHD and you have a whole day that's free, you usually wind up doing nothing because, you know, inertia breeds inertia, uh, especially with ADHDs. Really keep, keep that color coding going because that works well for people. Uh, and what students find sometimes is that when you have someone helping you create a structured schedule, you're much more likely to be able to do that on your own uh, the next semester. So also on uh, money management. So you got students with ADHD and it's like money's burning a hole in their pocket. They are more likely to spend and also, we live in an age where we pay for everything mostly with cards. We don't pay for things with cash anymore. It's really easy for people with ADHD to forget they're actually using money. Uh, so one of the things I recommend is you can link bank accounts. And what that means is you can transfer money to your student's account, but, but your student cannot take money out of your account. And you can have a set dollar amount each month, and it could be the rule is that once you go through that money, you go through that money. And you can work on setting up a budget with your student. How much money do you need for food expenses? How much do you need for if you're paying rent? Uh, how much do you need for um, clothing? And sit down and make up that budget and have the two of you agree to, this is how much we're going to give you every month for these things. And if it runs out, it runs out. Also, you can use a prepaid credit card. I don't recommend the students get a credit card, but they, uh, just an unsecured credit card. But they do need a credit card if they're buying things online, and a lot of them do buy their books online. You can use a prepaid credit card where it has a set amount of money. What you don't want to do is have people use their debit card online because once their account's wiped out from a hacker, it's wiped out. Uh, if your credit card's uh, charged fraudulently, you have some leeway with the bank and you, you can uh, have those charges reversed. I use a prepaid credit card. Uh, there are ones that will automatically load uh, once the, the you know, dollar amount gets below a certain number. Uh, also, I, I recommend the first year of college that people hold off on getting a job. Now, sometimes this is a necessity, but really the first year should be your job is college. Uh, your job is going to class. Your job is learning how to study, and things tend to go much better that way. Uh, also, staying on campus uh, first semester uh, seems to be the best way for students to get adjusted as well. I was a resident assistant for several years, which means I lived on the dorm floor. Uh, and I found that students that, that lived in the dorm tended to be more adapted to college life because uh, they were right there in the thick of it. They were right in the middle of classes. And again, when you see people going to class, you're more likely to do it. We talked about setting up a basic budget. Also, you may have university meal plans. I know at uh, where I went to school, University of Florida, they had a card that you can just you know swipe in front of a register and that's it. You've paid for your dinner. Uh, but you may have students to start treating their friends to dinner because, again, it's a plastic card. So it doesn't really compute as money to people. Uh, again, also avoid real credit card use. You may need to help your student build up some credit, but again, you can have a secure credit card or a prepaid credit card. There are tons of scholarships available. I know Chad and Ada have scholarships, uh, so that's a great way to help pay for things. And also be aware of high interest rate on student loans. Uh, there are federal student loans and there are private companies that do loans, and almost always the private companies have a higher interest rate. Uh, students may also find that they, if they go to a, a college that's a local or state college, uh, they can get just as good an education as a private school. 
Uh, and what I've noticed, too, also is that some of the um, Ivy League schools, people are taught by graduate assistants, and the state schools are taught by the actual professors. So uh, just because you're paying a lot of money for an, uh, an education doesn't mean you're actually getting a better one. Just kind of be aware of that and be... Um, be cognizant of the fact that, you know, you get, want to be really careful about the amount of student loan debt that's being racked up. So I think then we're going to, Ari's going to take over. Okay, sounds good. For a lot of students, a lot of college students, college is the first time that they're actually living with another person inside the same room. You know, a lot of us these days grow up, a lot of kids these days are growing up with their own room, which is a pretty nice thing if you can get it. But living with another person inside probably a much smaller room is a whole different experience. For students who are kind of messy, that potentially runs, a, um, runs into the possibility that their roommate will at least be not as messy. Not to say that they're like perfect or Martha Stewart or anything, but they're not as messy. You know, there's that strife about what goes where and your stuff is on my side and, and all of that. Maybe worth some conversation with your student about at least putting it onto their radar screen. By the way, you may want to be considerate of your roommate. You might want to check in with them about how they feel about your stuff kind of sprawling out all over the floor if that's an issue for your teenager. Obviously, there is no need to di to disclose a diagnosis of ADHD. And you know, this is like, I actually have a whole separate presentation just on that little topic. Typically, what I recommend is in those kind of situations, you talk symptoms before diagnoses. So you don't have to tell a roommate, I have ADHD, therefore, it's hard for me to remember to put stuff away. You just skip right to that second part. You know, it's sometimes hard for me to put stuff away. But if it's bugging you, do me a favor, don't be pissed about it. Just like, let me know and I'll, and I'll do what I can. So to just sort of address it in a very direct kind of a way, because, you know, roommate strife, roommate drama is just like the last thing anybody needs. Like your room should be the place where you can go and relax and, and get a good night's sleep and maybe do some studying, but not the place that you're kind of wrestling with your roommate. Roommate matching, when you fill out those little questionnaires and then the school matches you up or they just randomly throw you together, not always ideal. A lot of colleges these days are doing like Facebook groups where the incoming class can talk to each other. And I think a lot of it's kind of probably fairly mindless chit chat, but that can be a good place to find a, someone who actually seems like a decent roommate. So I think you can get a better match that way rather than letting the university just throw the two two or three people together. As nice as it is to have a single dorm room where you can close the door and you can turn out the light and you can sleep when you want to sleep and you, know, you can close the door and have a quiet place to study, there's the possibility for some people that it also becomes too much of a kind of a hidey hole where you know they hide away and they don't really interact enough with the rest of the world. This is definitely going to be more the case for folks who are have a tendency towards depression and also definitely your big time gamers. If you have a kid who can play 17 hours straight of video games, probably a single room is not going to be a good idea for them, especially if they're a little bit shy as it is. Sometimes then, the, you know, for that reason, sometimes the best option, if it's available, is kind of a pod style room where it's called a suite or whatever, where you've got sing small single rooms, small single bedrooms, but then there's like a common area with a couch and a TV, and then there's some bathrooms or a kitchen or whatever. So it's sort of like you get the best of both worlds. You get that social interaction with some roommates, but you also have a door that you can close and sort of go and do your own thing. 
it's nice to be able to, it's probably cheaper to live off campus and to have an apartment and to, you know, have your maybe a very limited meal plan in terms of campus provided. But living on campus, I think it gives you more of that true college experience. As Steph said, it definitely has more of a tendency to kind of keep you on track because other people are doing that same stuff. And especially for the first year, unless the option is to live at home, then, you know, that's like a different discussion. But if the choice is between apartment with some friends versus living in a dorm, probably living in a dorm is going to be a much better place in terms of just keeping them on track and not just wandering off. Because if you have your own place off campus, it's just really easy to be out of the sort of college mindset or the going to classes mindset. Big change from high school to college, one of the many big changes. But academically, the big change is that you have a lot less class time and a lot more self-directed study time. And this is why college students with ADHD run into so much trouble, that it depends on them to kind of self-structure and create that study time. There's a bunch of sort of tips and tricks and strategies and whatnot that you can use, but certainly, you know, one of them is to do the sort of like work break cycle where you work for a chunk of time, let's say 30 minutes, and then you take 15 minutes to take a break, come on back, do it again. And the idea is it keeps you sharp and fresh and it just kind of like you retain more of what you're studying when you take a break so you don't kind of saturate and then you're technically there, but you're not really getting much out of it. Preferably when you take that break, it's not just screwing around on your cell phone, but getting up, going for a walk, kind of gets the blood flowing a little bit, gets the heart rate up slightly, and it just sort of gives you something different. The only sort of thing to consider when it comes to breaks is don't do really interesting things that you tend to get stuck on. So don't turn on the video game that, let's be honest, does not have a good break point 15 minutes into it. You know, that the 15 minutes becomes an hour. Getting online can also kind of, you get stuck or running into friends, you could also get stuck there. So a little bit of thinking ahead about what are good break activities and maybe what are not as good. Also, definitely, and this is going to be heresy, I think, to a lot of young folks, but turning off your phone, turning or at least turning off the notifications on your phone, on your laptop, so you don't have all this stuff popping up at you. It takes a lot more mental energy to manage your distractions when there are a lot more distractions coming at you. Likewise, other visual distractions, so getting all the stuff off of your desk so you have just the stuff you're supposed to be paying attention to, Maybe putting a do not disturb sign on the door if, if, you know, they live somewhere where there's lots of people kind of, you know, just barging in just because they're being social and that's cool and all, but it's not getting, it's not helping get work done. And then having background noise, especially if they live in a dorm, which can be noisy. So having music playing, uh, my advice there is play an album or Pandora or a sound um a song list or something, but not every three minutes you're looking for a new song on your phone. Way too distracting, takes up way too much time. But having a fan going or a white noise or find a white noise MP3 and play that through your speakers or whatever. So it kind of drowns out those exterior sounds that you don't want to be hearing and paying attention to. One of the great ways to sort of sync the new information from class into your brain is to review the notes right after the class, or maybe if not right after, because you have another class or lunch, at some point soon after. So that way you can fill in a couple of those things that you missed because that you didn't quite get into your notes, but you remember it. So you can fill that in 
But just that second look at it helps to sort of put that information into your head a little bit more. And the better you understand today's notes, the better you're going to understand the lecture two day, in the next class two days from now. You know, these days, there's still people taking notes the old-fashioned way with pen and paper, but there's more and more professors who are just putting up, you know, PowerPoint slides, and they're putting them up on the internet, and the students download them, and they can take notes right in there. The nice thing about that is there's no losing papers because everything gets saved onto your device, and it's searchable, and, you know, it just it's, it's kind of a nice, a nice little thing, especially if you tend to be kind of disorganized with your paper. Depending on how new the version of iPad or tablet or laptop or whatever, you know, the ability to take notes right onto the slides themselves is, you know, obviously... Um, a handy little thing. And it makes for, again, it's less of like refer here when you're looking at this, you know, like that's harder to keep track of. And some students just won't take that extra step to kind of refer to a separate page of notes. There's also smart pens out there. So like LiveScribe, for example, is one of them that as you're writing, it audio records what is being said in the lecture. And that way you can go back and tap the note like you can go back later tap a particular part in your notes and it knows somehow magically at what time stamp that got written so you're not rewinding and fast forward and rewinding and fast forward and trying to hunt around to find like that part of the lecture that you didn't quite understand in your notes or whatever and the reason why that's important is Impatient students will not sit there and do it. They'll just say, screw it, whatever, I don't care. And then they'll just hope for the best on the test that that stuff doesn't get covered. So smart pens like this, they're not that expensive and they're pretty cool and can be a good thing for folks who tend to sort of space out during lectures. Definitely, definitely go to office hours with the professors. Go at the start of the semester, introduce yourself, talk to the professor about the class. You know, how do you see this class fitting into the subsequent classes in the curriculum, what do you expect us to get out of this? What are the most important points? You know, what's interesting about this class that I should know about? Give me the big picture on where this semester is going to go. And to just sort of like have that conversation. If the professor knows you as a student, and if they feel that you've made some effort to, you know, manage your work well and to come in and to be responsible and you're showing up to lectures, they're much more likely to be generous in the event of some emergency or some other thing that comes up. Professors are like everyone else. They do not want to feel like they are working harder than the other persons. If you're a student who halfway through the semester has never shown up for office hours, has never raised their hand during class, and now you're sending an email that, oh, I was sick last night, I couldn't get the paper done, why should the professor extend themselves on that when they may not feel accurately or not, but may not feel that you've extended yourself in any kind of way? I think it's important then for the professor to feel like you as the student are doing your part to make it into a successful semester for yourself. When you take the test, you get it back. Unless you did really well, you know, if you have some questions, that's a good opportunity to go in and talk during office hours because the better you understand what happened on this first test, let's say, the better prepared you are to understand what is likely to happen on the second test or on the final. Being able to understand how does this professor ask questions? What kind of stuff tends to show up on the test? What kinds of answers do they look for that get lots of points versus answers that get not enough points? 
So part of your job as a student is to kind of mind read your professor a little bit. And that's just part of like, I don't know, it's that old saying, know your audience. A lot of students with ADHD struggle with kind of like breaking assignments down. And, you know, this is another one of those places where high school is so much different than college because, you know, most high school assignments really don't go more than a week. Probably a lot of them don't go more than a day or two. You get into college and you could have a paper that's supposed to span like half a semester or something, or there's a test that covers six weeks worth of material. For some students who have trouble breaking down big assignments into lots of small pieces, I'll do this on this day and this on this day and this on this day, and then da, 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 six weeks later, boom, final paper. It can be helpful to work with someone, and this could be someone in the disabilities office, for example, it could be maybe a friend, probably not great, or an advisor or a coach or a therapist or an organizer or someone who can help them sort of plan out, get all their syllabi, get them early and transfer all those big due dates onto the calendar. Because I cannot tell you how many times I've had college students who've missed assignment just because like the date sort of slipped past, like they didn't have all their syllabi, you know, big dates all in one place. So I think that that accommodation of having someone who can sit down, get help them get it all into one place, and then meet with them on like a weekly basis, maybe even just a half hour, and to check in, how are you doing on this? How are you doing on that? What do you got coming up this week? Let's take a look. Did you email that professor? Just that sort of external accountability, I think, is like the single best accommodation for college students with ADHD. On the one hand, Probably every parent of an 18-year-old thinks about the possibility of sending their kid off to college and thinks, oh my God, there's no possible way this could work out. Fortunately for our society and our economy, most of those 18-year-olds somehow or other manage to make their way through you know, the college process. Might not be in four years, might not be all at the same college, but most of them do. A lot of them don't, but most of them do. The challenge for folks with ADHD is that in order to rise up and handle that greater freedom and independence of a college campus requires good executive functions. And that is exactly what folks with ADHD tend to struggle with, that they tend to be, when it comes to these executive functions, these life management skills, they tend to be somewhere like one to three years younger than their calendar age. On their driver's license, they're 18, when it comes to keeping track of homework, you know, managing distractions, handling priorities, they may be functioning like a 15 or a 16-year-old. And of course, almost none of us would send a 15-year-old off onto a college campus and expect that kid to ever come back with any, ever having seen the inside of a classroom. For the same reason, a lot of these students with ADHD struggle in those early years of college, or at least they would struggle if they got sent off when they were 18. So it may be that as a parent, you need to be a bit more involved with your college student than their roommate's parents are. And that's just because if you're not, it's not going to work out as well because of these executive function delays. I hear this question quite a bit in my office of parents who just are not sure, like, do I get more involved? Do I get less involved? I don't really know. I don't want to be too involved, obviously, but at the same time, it scares the hell out of me to be less involved. So what's the right amount? And then, of course, you ask the teenager and they have very clear opinions about what the right amount is. 
and it is almost always a whole lot less than what their parents think the right amount is. It's it's sort of a tough one, I think, for all parents. I mean, the heart of parenting really is figuring out what can my kid do on their own? What do they need support? You know, so how much independence, how much support? Like it's that balancing act from the moment they come out of the womb all the way up to the moment that they have kids of their own which hopefully is until they're 30. We're trying to balance out how much independence and freedom versus how much oversight and external responsibility. Obviously, young adults want less parental involvement. I mean, one of the developmental tasks of young adulthood is that they want to be free. They want to make their own choices. They want to explore the world. They want to figure things out from the, for their own. Unfortunately, one of the deficits of you know, teen, the teen years in young adulthood is that these, you know, at this age, we tend to overestimate how, how good we've, we're doing here. And that's especially true for these students with ADHD, that they think they're doing better than parents or teachers would rate them as doing. Partly that's because they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily sufficiently aware of how much support they've gotten, how much parents reminding them and teachers checking in on them and other elements of that structure have been helpful in keeping them from going off the rails. I have a lot of discussions with teenagers in high school, with college students and their parents about what is the right amount of involvement? How much should mom and dad be involved? How much should they let natural consequences take their toll versus actually getting involved and saying, nope, here's a limit, here's you know a boundary, here's a strategy, here's a requirement, whatever. And you know, there's no hard and fast rules on that. I think it depends on the circumstances. But I think in a lot of ways, what it comes down to is that it is on the teen, it's on the, the child, even if they're not a child anymore, to show the parent that they don't need that extra help. And the best way to show that is to show it. Don't say it, show it. Show me by your actions with some consistency, not one time, with some consistency that you can do this without me getting involved. And then fear not, I got plenty of other good things to spend my time on. Uh, maybe I need a hobby, but I don't have time to have a hobby. If my hobby is taking care of you, allow me the opportunity to find a new hobby. It's just gotten to a point where you can't talk to your young adult about this because, you know, it's just like, you know, wah, 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 kind of Charlie Brown's teacher sort of thing. They don't want to hear it from you, which, again, totally developmentally normal. Then maybe hiring somebody else to do it. So that could be a coach or an organizer that you pay privately who can work with your student or a therapist who's off campus somewhere that they can go to and work with maybe someone at the counseling center, maybe someone at the disabilities office who can kind of work with your student, probably say a lot of things that you would say, but can get away with saying it because you're not, you know, this person isn't their mom or dad, so the student won't get all kind of snarky with them about it. And sometimes this feels like more of a progression towards independence. It's not mommy telling me what to do. It's that, you know, coach I've got, or it's that nice dude at the disabilities office. And it just, it kind of goes down a little bit easier and it gives you then the opportunity to have a relationship with your kid that doesn't involve nagging them all the time or that isn't kind of, it doesn't feel like the nagging is poisoning your relationship with them. So you can have normal conversations about like 
What'd you do? Th- what'd you do today? What do you got going on? What about this weekend? Hey, do you see that game? Oh, I heard this movie's coming out. Tell me what's happening with your friends. Like normal conversations that you know can feel like they get squeezed out when you feel like you got to address these other things on the agenda, so to speak. It's important to notice not just where the places that the teen is kind of dropping the ball a bit, but where the places that they're doing well and that progress is progress. It's not going to be overnight. It's not going to be a thunderclap and all of a sudden it's there. But, you know, progress is usually incremental. It's important, I think, sometimes to look for those incremental changes and to offer some positive feedback. This is especially the case when... It's a situation where either your relationship with this student, with your kid, or just in general, like they just get way too much kind of negative feedback. Why did you do this? Why didn't you do that? Why did you do it that way? That, you know, folks with ADHD, if they're not managing their ADHD well, are more likely to get more kind of negative direction. So as much as we all benefit from positive comments, maybe especially those who get too many negative comments really need those positive, supportive comments, those acknowledgements of like, wow, that's awesome. I'm glad you went and talked to the professor. You know, I know that that's you know, kind of hard for you to do. I know you felt anxious, but that's really great that you went and did it anyway. And certainly we want to have big dreams and big goals for our kids, but we also have to have realistic ones. Just to like go with a cliche like Dean's List, that may not be in the cards here, but maybe that's okay. Like maybe you don't have to be Dean's List. Or maybe... The goal isn't that you're going to take five classes, but you're going to do four and you're going to do better at the four than you are at taking five. And if you have more realistic goals, it's more likely that you're going to hit them, but it's also more motivating to work towards them. Excessive goals are really just kind of demotivating. As a summary, accommodations don't give extra benefits. It's sort of like the kid who needs eyeglasses to see the blackboard does not get x-ray vision from wearing eyeglasses. They just get 20-20 vision like the kid sitting next to them without eyeglasses. Accommodations are helpful, but they don't give superpowers or an unfair advantage. A lot of times when I see college kids who've bombed out or are in the process of bombing out, you know, a lot of, often it begins, like those first dominoes, begin with sort of poor self-care. So they're not getting into bed on time. They're taking giant naps in the middle of the day. They're screwing up their sleep cycle. They're not eating well. They're not exercising. They're probably drinking too much. They're having too much fun. They're not keeping track of assignments. That It's just like the beginning of that downward spiral. It makes it all the more important to have some sort of a structured schedule. Because there's so little actual class time in college, it means more of that time needs to be planned by them of this is what I'm going to do here and this is what I'm going to do there. Definitely keep a close eye on money. and giving your kids money in smaller chunks. Do not give a kid with ADHD all the semester's money all at once, because I guarantee you halfway through, if not less, they're going to be calling you broke. Um, So give it to them in increments that they can handle. And just accept the fact that you might need to be a little bit more involved in this kid's life than their roommate's parents are. But that's all right. If it makes for a better college experience, then, you know, I'd say that was worth it. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Ari and Stephanie, for sharing your expertise. Are you looking for a magazine that's rich in practical information, clinical insights, and evidence-based strategies for managing ADHD? 
We've got you covered. Chad's award-winning attention magazine will keep you informed and up-to-date on ADHD. Whether you read the print or digital version, Attention Magazine will definitely hold your attention. To start your subscription today, visit chad.org. Thank you for listening to Chad's National Resource Center on ADHD, Ask the Expert.